You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. This morning, I only have two verses that I'm reading for scripture reading. So we're going to start in Esther 9, verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adair, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. And now we're going to skip to chapter 10, verse 3. For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ashuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Amen. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for just offering this piece of yourself to us that we can continually know you better, know you more. And so God, I pray over the reading of your word. I pray over the preaching of your word. Thank you for for bringing us together as people of, of you, people of your name, followers of Jesus, to collectively commune together and seek better communion with you. And so as you are the unseen king in this book, we know that you are king all the same. We know that you are our um, just over the chaos of our lives and, and the good times of our lives. So, Father, I thank you for that, and I thank you for your Son and your Spirit who moves among us. And it's in your holy name. Amen. Thanks, Olivia. Um, good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm Pastor Jeremy, if you don't know me. It's, um, it's, it's good to be able to close down uh, Esther here. Um, this is a re- we're actually looking at chapter 9 and 10 uh, this morning. Um, before I go any further, uh, I'm going to go ahead and dismiss kids second grade through fourth grade. Second uh, through fourth grade, if you want to head to the back, you'll see someone, oh, there she is, raising her hands, and uh, you go to her and she'll escort you over to the gym, and y'all can have a good time of worship over there. Um, all right, so in case you have missed um, Esther, I kind of want to give a, a, a brief um, catch up to you on last time on Esther. Uh, what we've seen, right, God's people were in a dire situation as, as a death edict was put out on them. Uh, Mordecai uh, and Esther, they had a glimmer of hope when she became the queen. Uh, Mordecai and Esther both decided to be obedient and bold, something they hadn't done uh, in their life really up until this point. They, they shouldn't have been there to begin with. That's how we know that. And uh, this leads to them having the upper hand because God blesses their obedience. And this led all the way up to last chapter where Haman, uh, the, the villain, uh, is killed. And so the one leading the charge to kill the Jews is gone. So the question, well, what else is there, right? I mean, okay, the, the enemy's dead. Now what? Uh, there's still an irreversible edict. If you remember, there's still an irreversible edict that allowed a great purge to annihilate and plunder God's people. And now there's an edict, if you remember, that the Jewish people can defend themselves and actually plunder their enemies in return. And so that's where we're at in this story, right? We've reached a point of two edicts. Now, as you heard Olivia read, as I'm about to read to you, the, the first verse spoils the ending. I'm going to look at verse 1 of chapter 9. It says, On the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain a mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. There it is. It it, it ruins the entire, uh, I guess, last chapter, right? The climax is over. We know that the Jews win. And so, by the way, when a writer informs you uh, in the very beginning of a story who wins the battle, you know the, the, the... 
That's not, that's not the focal point of the story. And you've seen this literary device used before, right? Um, uh, think of the movie Titanic, right? Most of you have seen the movie Titanic. If you haven't, uh, you wouldn't be surprised to know that a ship sinks in the movie Titanic, right? You, if you know history, you know at some point a boat's going down. And in, if you've seen the movie, it, you know that in the very beginning. It says, hey, a, a boat sank, and then an old lady named Rose comes on the scene, and she tells you in the very beginning of the nine-hour movie, she tells you, I also lost the person I love. So in the very beginning, you know the end. But you don't know how it's going to play out. And that's kind of what we see here in Esther. God says, hey, uh, the, the Jews win. And just like Titanic does the same thing, hey, uh, boat sinks and you know, Leonardo DiCaprio dies, the point of the story isn't the end, it's the journey that gets you there. And so that's what you're going to see here, because they could have easily just put, hey, Jews won and Malachites lost the end. But again, that's, there's a bigger picture. And in fact, I would say that these chapters are an exhortation to you and less about the actual story. If you're a note taker, there are two points for you this morning, a time to war and a time to to love. Before we unpack scripture, I do want to pray. Uh, so, Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time where we get to worship you and study your word. I pray that you use your word to bring correction, to bring reproof, to train us up in righteousness. Lord, give us wisdom. Give us boldness. Lord, give me a, give me a clear mind as I'm teaching. Lord, we just love you and thank you for even hearing our prayers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to look at the first point, a time to war. Uh, I'm going to be reading Esther 9, 2 through 6. It says, The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Asuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house. And his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all the enemies with their sword, killing and destroying them. And they did as they pleased to those who hated them. And Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. So two quick little details we get here, right? First, we see that Mordecai has grown in influence. He's gotten more and more powerful to the to the point where people are scared of him, even those who may not be Jewish, who work in the government, they see how powerful he is, and so they're not going to betray him, they're going to help him um, destroy his enemies. Uh, actually, at the end, in, in verse 3, chapter 10, it says, For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to the king, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. So we see that Mordecai's power grew exceedingly, but also in chapter 9, right, we saw that some details of the battle that happened on the day of edicts. In Susa, 500 men were killed by the Jews. Now that was just what's going on in, in Susa. And verse 16 actually expands and tells us what's going on empire-wide, right? Because this edict was for the entire empire. In verse 16 it says, Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their, uh, their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but laid no hands on their plunder. So we see, right, there's 500 men dead in Susa, 75,000 in the other 120 plus provinces. And so despite the enemies, 
the many enemies and the children of Haman. Mordecai and the bride of Christ, or the bride of the king, would be victorious. Now, what I find fascinating is that despite Mordecai's fame, his honor that had increased, despite that Esther is now queen, the villains still thought they had a chance. Right? Haman, their, their representative, have, has already been killed, but they're still showing up to battle, right? They expect they're going to win. I mean, if they didn't, right, they could have said, hey, our leader died, and Mordecai and Esther, they got some pretty high seats in government. Maybe we ought not do this, you know, killing the Jews thing. And they decided, no, we're, we are going to show up. We're going to fight in the streets. We're going to do this. Now, maybe they were a bit delusional. That's what I kind of conclude. But their delusion was not because they underestimated Mordecai. Their delusion wasn't because they underestimated Esther or even the king himself, right? Their delusion is found in Deuteronomy 25, 18, when it speaks about these people, the Amalekites. It says they had no fear of God. That was their delusion, that their creator, that this God was not a God to be feared and reckoned with. Their confidence was found in their folly of unbelief and likewise, the people of God, our confidence is not in the political savviness of a government official like Mordecai. Our confidence is not in a public figure like Esther. The church's confidence, whether it's the Old Testament church or the New Testament church, rests in a covenant given by God, secured by God, and fulfilled by God. And so the people could gather and fight in confidence because God made a promise to Abraham, right? Your seed will bless the world. Now, how do I know that they're confident? Right? Nowhere here does it say that they're confident. Well, I say, listen, are they, are they hunkering down in their homes? Are they bolting the doors and, and boarding up the windows? Are they pointing their weapons at their door ready for an invasion? No, that's not what we see at all, right? It says that they're gathering together publicly. They're not hiding. They, they know there's an edict for their death. They could have maybe tried to, you know, you know, tell people they weren't Jewish, tell people they didn't worship the Lord, but rather they gather together and make a public profession, not only to their enemies, but to their families, that this is a God worth dying for. My allegiance is to my true king. And no longer can these men hide their identities, right? They gather and they show everyone exactly who they worship. Now, their trust in God's covenant, by the way, does not mean that they would survive. Right? So what I, I, like I, I have a very overactive imagination. Uh, and so as I'm reading this, like I imagine you know, like fathers hugging their children, maybe for the last time, a hug tight enough to hopefully it resounds through the rest of their life that their kids will remember it, you know, giving their, their wives uh, one last kiss. Maybe they wake up in the early wee uh, hours of the morning and they look back at their house and say, okay, this might be the last time I see this place again. And they gather together. And they knew very well that their life might, they, it might be lost. The promise that God would fulfill his covenant was that the Messiah would come. It wouldn't be that they would see, be alive to see it. But these men, they gather, knowing that not even these powerful enemies can thwart God's plan. Now this battle they were involved in, it was physical in nature. Right? 
But let me argue that it was, as much as it was a physical battle, it was also a spiritual one. Now, we've talked about this before in Esther, right? The goal here is to kill and stop the line of the Messiah, right? It is Haman and all of his disciples are doing the will of their father, who Jesus says is Satan. And so this goal that you see over and over again in the Old Testament to kill the Jews is Satan's attempt at stopping the coming Messiah. So this battle that was physical was most definitely spiritual. A cosmic spiritual battle played out physically. Now, where the enemies of God sought to stop the Messiah coming... These enemies of God still exist, and they try to stop the progression of his kingdom. And listen, like the people of Esther, Scripture is clear to you that you are in a battle, that you are at war with the same, maybe the enemy looks a little different, maybe it's not the Amalekites, but it's still an enemy that you are warring against, right? Ephesians 6, 11 and 12 tells us this. says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And so I want to take note that this is why they gather together then, and it's part of the reason why the church gathers together now. Now, worship takes many different forms, right? Sometimes we, it's singing, Sometimes it's learning, sometimes it's self-reflecting, but oftentimes it's fighting side by side together as a church, as a body. Now the soldiers here in Susa, I'm sure that there were some Jews who neglected the gathering, right? I'm sure some of them were like, nah, you know, you guys are all gathering, you're making yourselves a big target, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stay behind. I'm, I'm gonna neglect the gathering of these saints fighting for the kingdom of God. It's a dereliction of duty is what it is. And they put themselves in a position where they're to be exhausted and overrun. And notice, it's not just their own lives they would put in danger by doing so, by failing to gather. It's those, those who they shepherd in their own homes. Just as Jesus defeated Satan, Esther defeated Haman. And what you'll notice... It's just because Haman is defeated and just because Satan was defeated at the cross, we see there's still a battle. You guys are still in a war, whether you recognize it or not. You've been armed, you've been gifted to fight, but not to fight alone, but to gather and fight together is what we're called to do. It's a most dangerous situation when we have an army who doesn't realize that they're in a war. They, I mean, they understood it then, right? Because they see it. They see in flesh and blood before them that wants to kill them. My fear is that we fail to recognize that we are at war that wants to see your death and the kingdom's destruction. All the same. And by the way, you can tell we don't get it by what we focus on. I, uh, all of the pettiness that exists in the church. I, uh, I was talking to my, my grandfather. He was, um, 
He's incredibly old, but he's super sweet. And his mind is, is keen, man. He remembers all, he remembers everything. And I went, I was talking to him not long ago, and I was asking him about, he was on Normandy, uh, the D-Day of Asia. I remember growing up, he told me that he was, I asked him where he was in World War II. He said, Normandy Beach. And I was like, you got to go to a beach during war? That must have been nice, right? A little vacation for you. I didn't realize at the time, you know, that this was the D-Day invasion. And, and, and my grandfather was a medic, so he didn't have a gun, right? And the Nazis could have cared less that he was a medic, right? They're still shooting at him. And uh, so he, he, he tells me the story, and I remember asking him, I was like, hey, like what? I'm curious. You, you know, and you were told, hey, many of you are going to die. There's like an hour-long boat ride to the shore. What do you talk about? Like, you're just, you're just waiting. Like, what are, you, what are you talking about? What are you, a bunch of other, around other guys? And my fear is it'd be small talk, right? Because that'd be the worst thing. Like, the last hour of your life is small talk. That would just be the worst thing ever. But no, he said, listen, we were quiet. We didn't talk about nothing. It was just quiet. And I remember he said this. He goes, there was, there's no point in talking about stuff that didn't matter. Because what really mattered was death was in front of them, right? The, the door on the boat was going to drop. They were going to run the shore, and they were going to be faced with their enemy. That's what mattered. Surviving, protecting their, their brothers in arms. My grandfather, who's a medic, protecting, he, trying to heal these guys up so they can continue the fight. Protecting people, not only in that land, but in their own country, their own families. When the battle's in front of us, we, we get it, right? We get focused when it's flesh and blood. Now, I highly doubt anyone is gathering on the morning in this battle in Esther in the streets of Susa talking about petty things. I'm sure they were very focused. I doubt anyone's complaining about, man, couldn't Mordecai have picked the a warmer month to fight? It's kind of picked a cold month. We've got a little bit. We chose this date. Why did we pick like a summer day? Right? I'm sure nobody was sitting around going, complaining, going, oh my gosh, the rabbi's fighting in shorts. I think he has a tattoo. <laughs> I'm sure nobody was angry. Somebody who was a exterior designer upset that no one consulted them on the the color of the war flags. Don't they know I'm an expert? Our war flags could have been beautiful. We, we can giggle at it because we know it's silly. It's petty. It's dumb. Church, you are in a greater battle. Think of the junk and the pettiness that we squabble over. The silly things that we get distracted by. And what's the greater threat? A day battle? Well, at worst, they, they kill someone? Or spiritual battle that's been going since the garden and will continue until Jesus returns? A battle that's eternal in nature. Listen, Scripture calls us into battle, not alone, but together in church. There is a time for war, and you're in it. And what scares me is that we, I don't think we see that. You're not called to be a lone wolf. You're not called to be unprepared. Scripture 
without a doubt, calls us to gather together, edify, uplift each other, sharpen one another, and it calls us to be willing to fight the good fight for God's glory and for our families, both our church family and our homes. Now, so if Scripture calls itself the sword in battle, I'm curious, how well would you wield it? How able are you to fight a spiritual war that Scripture says you are most definitely in? I was thinking, if a soldier was protecting you, right? If, if, a, if a soldier was protecting you and they knew how to use their weapon as well as you know the sword of the Spirit, which is Scripture, would you feel comfortable? But just like the story here, we need to be ready in and out of season to fight against temptation and what Scripture calls and says are the forces of evil. Watch what happens here. But the story is about to take a really dark turn, which I kind of like. I think I always, I like, I have a dark sense of humor, and this is interesting to me. It says, this, so, so what we see here, and we've seen 500 people be killed in Susa, 75,000 more Amalekites killed around the entire kingdom. Now, watch here. Uh, that's not the only people that have died. And uh, we see that the sons, verse 10 of chapter 9, the 10 sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, have also been killed. And of course, it says here in verse 10, but they laid no hand on the plunder. So Haman, the enemy, has been defeated along with his offspring. A great foreshadow of a promise to come when the greater enemy of God's people, Satan and all of his offspring, are defeated. But that's where this story takes a different turn. It takes us from the battlefield and into the royal courts with the king and the queen. Uh, look at with me, uh, verse 11 and 12. It says, That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have been killed and destroyed, 500 men, and also 10 sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. Now, we don't know the tone that the king is speaking, right? He, maybe he's being like really sweet and romantic. Maybe he's going, listen, Esther, you want to kill a little more people? We can make it happen. We can do it. You want something cool to happen? We can do that. Whatever you want, my sweetest, dearest Esty, whatever he called her for short. Surely there's a nickname. I'll do it. Just ask me. I tend to have a lower view of this king. I think he's a horrible human being. And so, I, I, so when, when I'm in the kitchen, sometimes I'll be, I'll be like washing dishes, and I'll feel, I'll feel like someone's like staring at me, and I'll kind of look around, and I'll catch my daughter uh, peeking out from behind the wall, just kind of just doing one of these numbers. <laughs> like, do you need something? <laughs> she's always, she's, no, no, I'm, I'm just, no. Like, okay, all right. Go back to the dishes, a little worried what she's plotting in her mind. Usually it's a question she wants to ask me, and she's thinking, how can I frame this question? Usually it's about getting ice cream or something like that. And, and eventually I'm like, listen, what do you want? You want something. You're not just watching me do dishes, creepo. What do you want? 
And eventually she tells me, you know, she'll frame a question the way she wants. That's how I see this happening. I imagine Esther, last time she came, she had a big question. This is what I imagine here. I imagine Esther showing up, just kind of being like, hey. The king's like, well, yes, Esther, what is it? And she says, okay, uh, since you're asking what I would like, I'm going to tell you what I like. Here's what I like. Esther said, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to the day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa. And the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. So notice, she asks two things. Can the Jews in Susa continue to kill their enemies? We want an extra day to kill our enemies. And it says, he granted it. 300 more people died. This is where it gets a little weird, right? It's, she asks, can we hang the ten dead bodies of Haman's, you know, can we hang his kids, who are already dead, mind you, can we hang their bodies up on the gallows, impale them for a little war seasonal decor, just to kind of get the, the season of war uh, in the air. Now, I don't know about you, I read this and I'm like, it, dude, lady is angry, right? Is she bitter? Is she vengeful? What is, what is going on with Esther? Now, listen, I don't know Esther's heart, but what I do know is that God promised to destroy this enemy. And if nothing else, this exalts the judgment of God, and it shows that even when his people are disobedient, as Saul was in the Old Testament, who were told to kill the Amalekites, and he failed to do it, thus now their sin has affected the Jews in Susa. That despite our disobedience, God's will is going to be done. He promised judgment, and he's going to bring judgment. And he, no one can hide from it. It's his judgment to be had. Now, Esther is determined not to make the same mistake as her predecessor. If you remember, King Saul was told two things. Kill all the Amalekites and don't take their stuff. Leave it all behind. And he was about 90% obedient, which in God's economy is 100% disobedient. Now, it's not just Esther who learns the lesson from her foolish descendants, but it's also the rest of the people. You may have heard something over and over again, verse 10, 15, and 16. It says, but they laid no hands on the plunder. The writer is stressing this three separate times. Again, if you remember the story, they were told not to plunder the Amalekites. But Saul, he kept alive the king in disobedience as his trophy, and those who followed him followed his example and took all their possessions or their best possessions as a prize. Now Esther, she's not going to leave any enemy alive to parade around and the people are not going to plunder for their prize. They saw the failures of the past. And this isn't just a great reversal where the Jews now have mastery over the Amalekites. It's a great reversal of history. They learned from the past. And they're writing wrongs done. And what I love, by the way, is that the king, King Xerxes, he says, you, the edict said they could plunder. But I love that they appeal to not King Xerxes, but the king of kings who told them not to. And despite having the legal right to do it, they had a moral obligation to a greater king 
Now, surely the temptation to plunder was part of the spiritual battle here. But they understood that they were at war and they kept their eyes on the Lord's decree. Secondly and finally, we have a time to love. Now, in loving memory of what God had done here, they created a holiday. Chapter 9 speaks quite a bit about it, so I just want to highlight some of the aspects of this holiday. Verse 18, uh, chapter 9 says, But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th day and arrested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who were in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month Adar as a day of gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. Right? So this is a nice little holiday. Uh, they send gifts to one another. They, they eat. They hang out. They gather together having a good time. Mordecai actually writes a letter and says, he writes, gives them a little bit more. He tells them to keep, and this is verse 21 and 22, he tells them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days of sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. And verse 23 says, So the Jews accepted what had they started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. So here we are. A celebration where their mourning went to a holiday and where their sorrow went to gladness. Listen, this was not just a feast. This was not just a yearly party. This was something a little bit more than that. In fact, he also gives this order in verse 27, 20. I want you to listen to this very carefully. The Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them. That means if Aunt Myrtle came from out of town, they were going to go and celebrate this event, right? And without fail, without fail, fail, they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year. So what do we see? By the way, this is a second gathering. The first gathering was the fight. We see a second gathering, and what are they doing? They're celebrating. They were once dead men walking, but now they're alive. That their days of sorrow are now days of rejoicing. The rejoicing that they've been saved. Right? This should sound awfully familiar. This shouldn't be that alien to you. Oh, you some of you are going, oh, I know what you're doing. You're trying to tell us that we need to come to church more. You got it. That's what, exactly what I'm telling you. Some of you need to come to church more and gather together and worship your Savior. Absolutely. Some of you need to be obedient and not forsaken doing those things. Without question. But it's more than that. Some of you might go, oh I, oh, I know what it is. This is like a sermon commercial for home groups next week. Yes, that's part of it. Yes, you need to be in biblical community. You need to be in home groups. You need to gather in your homes, gather together, because guess what? That's what the people of God have always done, and you're no exception. But it's more than that. 
I want you to know something with me. Since COVID happened, and I can't remember when that is because my internal calendar is just all messed up. But since then, we've gone over Leviticus. We've gone over Daniel. We've gone Mark. We've gone Ruth. Now we're in Esther. Now, if you've kept track, we have gone over holiday after holiday after observance after observance after festival after feast. The entire Jewish calendar, every week, there was something. There was something. And what was the point of all of this? It was to point them to the, to the coming Messiah, to build anticipation that the Christ was coming. They never got to see it. We, on the other hand, have. So how much more should our calendar be wrapped around the gospel in celebrating Christ? All of these, all of these festivals are pointing to celebrating Jesus. You and I were benefactors of his grace and mercy every single morning. Your day is a monument to his grace. Let me argue that just as their entire calendar and every week was meant to look forward to the coming Christ, we as a New Testament church, there shouldn't be a day that isn't built and meant to take people and ourselves back to the cross and resurrection. I don't know about you. Maybe I'm just a bigger sinner than you, but there's not a day where I don't, I'm not under grace. There's not a morning I don't wake up and I realize how much of a sinner I am and that I'm spared by the mercies of God Almighty. But I can wake up and realize that would, without Christ, it would be a day of sorrow because death is what all that would have. But I no longer have that. I no longer have to live in sorrow. I can now be glad and rejoice. I can have hope. Day after day after day, I get to celebrate a resurrected king. Now we are quick to just forget I think how glorious our salvation is. I think often, if we're honest, we're very much like uh, the dory fish, right? We get very focused. Yes, focus on Christ, focus on Christ, focus on Christ, something shiny. And then we go off to the left, to the right. And we, and we completely forget what we're told over and over and over to remember. I want to read this again. Verse 27, verse 28. If you don't mind bringing it back up here, because there's something else that I, I want to stress to you. And I say this because it's not something I find important. I do find it important, but God finds it important. And it's something that we struggle with. And I'm not talking about generic church. New Heights Church, we struggle with this. It says, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring. And their offspring. Without fail, they obligated themselves and their offspring to the gospel, to remembering that God rescued them. 
Now, the reality is, if it's not on your heart, then you're not going to obligate yourself to it. That's just the reality, right? If, 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 if it's not a priority for you, if the gospel, if the gathering of the saints, like we're called, if it's not a priority for you, you're not going to obligate yourself to it. Let alone obligate your family to it. I want you to think of this. My daughter is, she's a dancer, right? Um, my son does hip-hop dancing. That's just kind of, he's not here, so I can say it. It's just funny to watch. But when my daughter does ballet, oh, oh my gosh, it's the most beautiful ballet that you will have ever seen, at least in my eyes, right? Now, listen, I'm not, like, I don't own the movie The Black Swan. I, I'm not, I've never watched Dancing with the Stars. I have never had the desire to. If instead of Dancing with the Stars, it was Dancing with Claire, I'd watch every episode. But she's in, she's in ballet. Now, when her recital comes in April, it's always in April, I'll find out that date, I'll mark it. There is nothing, I'm telling you guys, there is nothing that will stop me from seeing that girl's recital. Not because she'd be hurt if I did. I want to see it. I, I even do like a little like heart on the day, on the calendar. Like I get excited. Now, I've seen recitals before. I have a sister that did dance recitals, and they lasted like 12 hours, and I wanted to stab my eyes out. It was the worst. Like, I could, I, it was the worst. Just the worst. But now... My, I obligate myself with great joy to go watch my daughter do ballet. But why? It's because I love that little girl. I love her. I want to see her. They have priority because I love them. And I think if we're honest, what we will see is that we fail to obligate ourselves to his word. We fail to obligate ourselves to his worship because he's just simply not a priority. Now some, I'm gonna be honest, some of you, it's because you don't love him. That's why. You just don't love God. You, you've kind of fallen in love and, or like religious practices. But for some of you, it's just because you don't love him. That's why you don't make him a priority. For some of you, and I speak to myself, it's because I, just like Israel, just like Dory, I forget. I become entitled and forgetful and I lose focus on what matters. Now I love that Esther, in the closing of Esther, they say, in essence, do not let this story be forgotten. Because this just isn't my story. Guys, this is part of all of our salvific history. This is part of your story. Because you've been adopted into that family. But I love that. And it reminds me, and by the way, God knows how forgetful we are. He knows how forgetful we are. Right in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, it tells us, hey, you need to, you need to love the Lord your God, and you need to uh, keep the word of it before you, Teach it when you get up, when you lay down, when you're going. Teach it to your kids all the time, every day. Teach, teach, teach. Remind yourself daily of the gospel. All throughout scripture, God tells the people of Israel, you are so stinking forgetful. Remind yourself how much I love you. I love this. 
It reminds me so much of Esther, this little part in Joshua. This is as Israel's coming into the promised land. It's Joshua 4. It won't be on the screen behind you, uh, but I want you to listen to this. This is as they're coming into the promised land. Take 12 stones. This is the Lord speaking to Joshua. Take 12 stones from here and out in the midst of the Jordan from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly and bring them over with you and lie them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Now listen, when your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them. Over and over and over again. Over and over again, we are called to tell and to teach our offspring to gather, to battle together, to gather, to rejoice, to gather in our homes and teach our offspring and to bring them along in worship so they can see moms and dads genuinely in love with the Lord. Now in a minute, we are about to take communion and praise the God that he gives us an ordinance where we get to remember as often as we gather the gospel. That's why we do it every week. The atonement should never get old to you. Just like the festivals for the Old, the, the old Testament church should never get old. Our salvation should never become numb. It should be met with rejoicing and worship. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.